0: session we're going to finally get to the bottom line although frankly when we get there we'll discover we're still not where we want to be the proverbial bottom line how much did the company make this is reported in the income statement although you could theoretically get it out of the change in, in the retained earnings figure for the balance sheet if you also knew the dividend we could look at how much the retained earnings changed, add to it the dividend and that would be the amount of company to ma- the money the company made that year but the income statement makes it much clearer Again, we're going to be referring to the balance sheet and income statements of the XYZ Corporation, so you should have those out, and we'll be pulling numbers out of there to actually work with the figures. The income statement is a statement of how much the company made in the past accounting period, typically one year, although listed companies, firms whose shares trade in the open market, typically report quarterly also. If you were an insider, you could get weekly income statements if you wanted them. Although again, you'd probably be so deluged with information you couldn't deal with it anyway. But quarterlies are very common. The income statement lists in order the revenues that the company receives and then subtracts out the expenses to get down to a pre-tax bottom line. Then we subtract out the taxes and we're left with profit after tax, which at least at first glance is what we're all about. Revenues, the first line in the income statement for X Y Z in 1995, X Y Z earned 100 million dollars, well, thousands, according to the units at the top, hundred thousand dollars in sales. These sales are net of any discounts that we gave to customers, assuming they accepted the discount. So it's the money actually received from customers from sales. Whether they are sales that we've actually collected the money for yet or not depends on what, how the company happens to pick its book. If it picks a set of books that are based on accrual, then it may show earnings that are still accounts receivable. Some companies operate strictly on cash and therefore a sale isn't a sale until we have cash in hand, that is we've collected the receivable. Out of, receiv- out of uh, cash received in the form of sales, we subtract the cost of goods sold. Here again confusion reigns. The cost of goods sold includes the raw materials and the labor that went into producing the product or service that we sold. In some cases, in some companies, they also include the depreciation of the equipment that was used to manufacture the widgets or whatever it is we're selling. Uh, I personally don't like that for reasons we'll get back to when we look at the nature of cost because the depreciation charge they are including there isn't the same kind of expense that goes into the cost of goods sold. We'll talk to a great extent about the, the nature of expenses as we go along and then see how they influence how a company behaves. Uh, Companies that have fixed costs have to behave differently than companies that avoid fixed costs. We subtract cost of goods sold out of the sales figure to come up with a number that's generally called either gross margin or sales margin or profit margin. If you divide that number by sales, that's the percentage margin on, on the sale, not after tax percentage, but the percentage that we earn on each item we sell. Then having subtracted out the cost of goods sold, we have a lot of other expenses to subtract out. We have sales and administrative expenses, the president has to be paid, the salespeople have to be paid, and so on. Although if the salespeople are on commission, we might include that back up in the cost of goods sold item, for reasons we'll get to later. But at the minimum, the sales manager's salary would be included in the sales and administrative expenses. We also have to subtract out depreciation, that's the charge for plant and equipment, assuming that, unlike other companies, we don't include it back in the cost of goods sold item. We have to subtract that interest expenses. We pay for the use of money, and that is an expense. And the reason we want to subtract it out is it reduces our reportable income, and any time we can report less income, we pay less taxes. So we're very anxious to tell the tax collector that, indeed, we had depreciation charges. There are other kinds of expenses we might subtract out. Amortization of patents and good and, uh, uh copyrights. You'll recall that that if we own something that has a limited life and we paid for it, we're going to have to write it off during its life. And with the exception of plant and equipment, which we depreciate, other things we amortize. Still another expense that might be subtracted out by an oil company is what's known as a depletion allowance. It's really just an allowance, though. It's, it's There's no theoretical basis for it other than the tax collector allows companies that are extracting raw materials from the earth, be it oil, copper, or you name it, a certain percentage of sales to take into account that they're really using up an asset in the process of earning their money. And that, again, will go to decrease reportable earnings and therefore allow us to pay lower taxes. So this is the whole list of expenses. I think if you think about it a while, you could probably come up with a few more of them. But those are the basic expenses that we subtract out to get to the line profit before tax. Then the tax collector rears his or her ugly head and asks for anywhere from 30 to 50 percent of it in the form of taxes. What's left is profit after tax. And from profit after tax, the directors in their wisdom can either pay dividends, retain the money in the business to make it grow, or buy in additional shares, hopefully increasing the value of your shares. So that's the basic structure of the income statement. Now we're going to look at pieces of it individually to see how it influences the behavior of a company. To do that, we have to understand something about the nature of costs or expenses. Accountants call costs that move up and down in concert, in congruence with sales, variable costs. That is, if we sell more, we have more of those costs. If we sell less, we have fewer of those costs. The best example is direct labor used in producing widgets or whatever it is we produce. If we produce more and sell more widgets, we're gonna have to incur more labor costs to do it. If we produce and sell fewer widgets, we'll have lower labor costs. Another variable cost is raw material. If we produce and sell more widgets, we're gonna have to use more raw material to produce the widget. If we produce and sell fewer widgets, less raw material. So raw material is a variable cost. And finally, the less obvious one is energy used in the production process, the electricity that runs the machines, the coal that heats the ovens that that makes steam that we use to run a steam engine. If these are being used in the production process, they're regarded as a variable cost because clearly, if we're making more widgets, we run the motors, the engines on the the, uh, widget making machines longer, we use more electricity, and that's a variable expense or cost. So costs that go up and down are variable now interestingly some costs that we've regarded as variable like labor can also be regarded as a fixed cost which is the other kind of cost that is suppose we were three minutes before the end of the day and had nothing for the workers to do clearly we're not going to fire them right so we're paying them without producing anything so in a sense they're a fixed cost in the short term but a variable cost ordinarily okay The other kind of cost that I suggest that we have to worry about in this section is fixed costs. Costs that do not move up and down with sales. That doesn't mean they're unchanging. They may move up and down for other reasons, but they're not directly tied to sales. And for our purposes, practically all of the expenses that were listed below the gross margin line on XYZ Corporation are fixed costs. Now let's look at them individually. Sales and administrative expenses. The president's salary has to be paid no matter what, so it's a fixed cost. On the other hand, that no matter what doesn't continue too long because if we fail to make money for a few years, what do we do with the president? Out. So his cost becomes variable at that point. If sales aren't enough, we do away with the president. But in the short term at least, the the normal term in the company's reporting period, administrative expenses are fixed. The second major administrative expense is depreciation. Depreciation could be a constant. That is, if we were on straight line, we'd charge off the same amount every year, but even more significantly, it can also vary. If we use accelerated depreciation, remember we talked about taking more depreciation in the early years and less in later years, the depreciation is changing, but the amount of depreciation is not based on the number of widgets we make and sell. It's based upon our assumptions about what the life of the equipment is and what salvage value we'd get out of it After we subtracted that out of historical cost, we came up with a way of depreciating. So depreciation can be changing, but it is not variable. It's fixed as far as the accounts are concerned. Interest expense. Interest expense can vary. It varies with the amount of money we borrow and the interest rate we pay to borrow, which can change day to day if we're borrowing short term from the bank and the Fed is messing around with interest rates. So interest rate varies, but it's still a fixed cost because it doesn't vary with sales. Depletion is also arguably a, a fixed cost because it's tied to the using up of the resources in the ground. Some purists might argue that it's a variable cost because it's normally allowed as a percentage of sales by the tax collector. Therefore, if there were more sales, at least of oil or whatever we're depleting, we'd have slightly more depletion charge. Amortization of, of, both, uh, fix, of uh, patents and copyrights and another item we can introduce at this point goodwill which is simply what we paid to buy something over and above its book value if we buy a company and pay more than the book says it's worth the extra is called goodwill and we have to write that off we amortize that also the disadvantage is that goodwill can't be can't be written off for tax purposes has to be written off after the bottom line but all of these are fixed expenses and let's see why that's important now, remember, the general equation for uh, profit before tax is simply written this way. That is volume, the number of units I make and sell, times the difference between unit price, how much we sell each unit for. And can you see that volume times unit price is sales? If I sell 100,000 widgets at $10 apiece, 100,000 times 10, I've done a million dollars in sales minus unit variable cost that's how much variable cost is built into each unit in the form of raw material direct labor energy used in the production process perhaps sales commissions and even conceivably depletion if it's on a percentage of sales basis and again because i put it on a unit basis if i multiply it by the volume of units sold that's the total variable cost the difference between unit price and unit variable cost is usually called unit contribution. That is, the amount over and above the variable cost that I sell it for is a contribution that can go first to covering fixed costs, and once I've covered them all, it can go to the bottom line as pre-tax profit. So the contribution per unit is the difference between what we sell it for and what cost we actually incur just to make it as opposed to costs that we would incur whether we made it or not, like the president's salary, the interest cost, the depletion allowance, and so on. Now, let's see why this equation is useful. Let's put some numbers on here. Uh, Suppose that a company makes and sells 10,000 widgets a year, and it sells them at a unit price of $10 each. Sales would therefore be $100,000. And incidentally, if you like big zero numbers, put a bunch of zeros after everything. $100,000 in sales. Let's suppose that the unit variable cost to produce each unit is six dollars. That's direct labor, raw material, and energy used in the production process, and perhaps a couple other things. Notice that each widget we make and sell makes a four dollar contribution over and above its variable cost, difference between ten and six, four dollars, that can go to first covering fixed cost, and then once they're fully covered, they can go to the bottom line as profit. Okay? Now, the fixed cost, let's make it $20,000 for the year. I think you can see that under these circumstances, with a $4 contribution from each widget and selling 10,000 units, we have total contribution of $40,000. But $20,000 has to go to covering fixed cost, and so we're left with a pre-tax profit of $20,000. Now, that by itself isn't very interesting, as I suggested in the earlier sessions. What really makes it interesting is to draw some comparisons and ask what-if questions. Well, let's ask this question. What if Universal Widget, the company we're looking at now, had some excess capacity and that next year, instead of selling 10,000 units, they sold 11,000 units, still selling them at $10 a piece? And let's suppose the variable cost, we have no inflation because the Feds kept it down, uh, $6 each. We're still getting a $4 contribution out of each widget. Fixed costs haven't changed because they're not tied to volume. So it remains at $20,000. Can you see that the total contribution from the 11,000 widgets is $44,000? $4 times the number of widgets we sold. Now we have $44,000 of contribution. 20 of it still has to go to cover fixed costs. That being the case, the company generates a $24,000 Pre-tax profit. Now it's getting interesting. Volume went up 10% from 10 to 11,000 units. Notice that sales also went up 10% from $100,000, 10,000 units at $10 a piece, to 110,000, 11,000 units at $10 a piece. But notice what happened to pre-tax profit with both volume and sales going up 10%. Pre-tax profit went from 20 to 24. It's up 20%. Now that disproportionate increase in profit tied to an increase in sales, based on a percentage, we call leverage. Unfortunately, we use that term in a couple other ways later, but we'll have to explain it as we go along. Leverage in this case means a disproportionate change in profit for a change in sales. Notice a 10% change in sales generated a 20% increase in profits. We'll ask why in just a minute, but let's make sure that we understand that that cuts in both directions because if volume had dropped to 9,000 units, all other things remained the same, profits would have fallen to $16,000. $4 contribution on each of 9,000 units generates 36,000 of contribution, 20 of that goes to fixed cost, and there's only 16,000 left for pre-tax profit. So notice in this case, a 10% drop from the baseline of 10,000 units down to nine results in a 20% drop from the baseline of 20,000 profit down to 16, which is a way of saying, under these circumstances, when business is good, it's very good, but when it's bad, it sticks. Now, the question is, why is this leverage present? Why does profit change faster than sales? Well, the culprit is this item of fixed costs. Can you see that if there were no fixed cost at all, profit would just be four times whatever number of units we sell? But because there is an item of fixed costs, once we cover it, it's all gravy. We had obviously covered fixed costs even in the base case because we had a profit. So each of the additional 1,000 units we sold in the next period, all 1,000 units each contributed a $4 contribution, all of it went immediately to the bottom line because there were no more fixed costs to worry about. Well, this is great. That means when business is good, it is great. But, of course, it means we have to worry about when business is bad. That leads to an interesting question. Let's suppose we're back at the base case again. We're selling 20,000 units, or 10,000 units, rather. than making $20,000, and a customer with some integrity approaches this and says, Look, if you'll sell me an additional widget at the right price, I'll buy it from you, and I promise I won't tell anyone what a good deal I got. The question we have to ask ourselves is just how cheap would we be willing to sell a widget to that customer for to make the sale? Can you see that if we sell it for anything over variable cost, we have an improvement in our position? If we can get more than $6 for it, anything over and above 6 is a contribution that either goes to covering fixed costs if we haven't already covered them, which we have in this case, or straight to the bottom line. So if we could sell one additional unit, even if we only got 601 for it, profits pre-tax would go up by a penny. And so the pressure that management feels in a situation like this to make the next sale tends to cause them to drive price down towards variable cost. Anything to keep that machine busy and sell more widgets is worthwhile. Even if we were losing money, it would still be worthwhile because if we get a contribution above the variable cost, it would help cover some of those miserable fixed costs we're saddled with. The ultimate example of that is in an airline. An empty seat in an airline is deadly. Essentially, the seats in an airline are fixed costs. The only additional cost to putting a passenger on the plane is a little extra fuel to carry them. And you have to feed them, although Art Buchwald said you can't call it food, you have to call it meal service, it would be fraudulent to call it food. But we do have to sell some peanuts and maybe a Coke. If we give them booze, we'll charge them for it. And so airlines can afford to discount seats all the way down to variable cost, and the variable cost is next to nothing, so of course they can let you have a seat at the last minute for next to nothing. Now the people who really feel the pressure on this are our Japanese competitors. Because remember, we said that fixed cost or uh, that variable cost included direct labor. However, in a good Japanese company, when you're hired, it's for life. And so what we regard as a variable cost labor, which we can lay off in bad times, the Japanese don't have that luxury. They see labor as a fixed cost. Now, a few years ago, my wife bought a Honda for new for $14,000 that was selling for $20,000 in Tokyo where it was produced. And I got to wondering, you know, where in the world did the Japanese come off selling a car cheaper here than there after incurring the full expense of hauling it over here in tariffs and everything else? And so I began to think about what the cost of building a Honda would be. And, of course, the first question I wanted to ask is what's the variable cost of producing a Honda? Because I know that, like any good manager, the Japanese would probably be willing to sell me a Honda at just over variable cost because that would mean they would get a contribution. So what's the variable cost of a Honda? Well, if we assume that labor is a fixed cost in Japan, essentially it's a little bit of electricity to assemble it, you know, to drive the uh, electric screwdrivers and things, plus the raw materials. Well, the little bit of electricity doesn't matter, so I said, how much raw material went into my wife's Honda? Well, rounding it off, maybe there's a ton of steel. That could be worth $600. There's four and a half tires if you count the donut in the trunk. Uh, If I were to buy them, they might cost $70 a piece, but you know very well that the Japanese auto company doesn't have to pay that, buying them in quantity. In fact, we'll discover when we talk about Firestone later that uh, the tire manufacturer would almost give them to Honda because they want their tires on a new car so that you'll replace them with their tires when the time comes to replace them so i think they can get the rubber to include the moldings around the uh, windshield and everywhere else you find rubber for a hundred dollars maybe 200 i wouldn't fight about it there's probably a hundred dollars worth of plastic in a honda you know the dashboard the knobs on the the uh handles to crank the windows up and down so i'll put a hundred bucks worth of plastic in there's perhaps a hundred dollars worth of fabric the headliner the coverings on the on the seats and so on so there's a hundred bucks worth of fabric There may be $100 worth of copper, zinc, and lead. The copper's in the wiring, the zinc is in the radiator, and the lead's in the battery. So I figure maybe $100 worth of unusual metals. And I suppose if you pushed it, there might be $100 worth of paint. What else might there be? Glass. There's a windshield and there's windows. $100 worth of glass if you push very hard there's one two three four five six twelve hundred dollars worth of raw material in a honda and so the variable cost of producing a honda is something just a little over twelve hundred dollars well by our formula that means that honda should be willing to sell a honda for twelve hundred dollars and one cent in order to make the sale so they still did pretty well selling selling the the car to superwife for for fourteen thousand dollars i know i inherited it when she bought her next new car it's got 98,000 miles and it's running very nicely, thank you. But the point is that, that the Japanese feel tremendous pressure because most of their costs are fixed. And if they don't sell cars, they're in big trouble. How cheap will they sell a car? Well, I don't know if you can bargain them down to $1,200 and one cent, but they can come down a lot further than 14,000 if they want to and still make out, particularly as long as they continue to sell the cars in, in Japan at full price. Now you see the problem in selling a car at just over variable cost. If I agree to make that sale to this customer here, and then I lose a customer who's paying full cost, I'm not recapturing enough contribution from you to help cover all the fixed costs. I'm only making a penny in selling it to you before fixed costs. So if I lose my fixed full cost customers, I'm in trouble if I have too many of these variable cost type customers. But the pressure is there, and the name of the game when you have fixed costs is you must keep it busy. You must try to produce enough widgets or cars or whatever the thing is that you're selling to spread those fixed costs and recapture them in the sale of the additional cars in the form of contribution from each car. The other lesson we learned is that when you have fixed costs, when business is good, it's great, but watch out when it's bad. This means that if you were structuring a business that's in a very, very cyclical industry where sales go up and down, that you might try very hard to avoid fixed costs. You'd rather structure yourself with as much variable cost as possible. Let's use workers to do the job instead of machines. Remember a machine generates fixed costs in the form of depreciation, and a machine may also generate fixed costs in the form of interest charges if we borrowed the money to buy it. So machines generate fixed cost, workers generate variable cost. If we operate it with mostly variable cost, we would be less sensitive to changes in sales. If we elect instead to automate and produce everything with fixed cost equipment, then we're going to pay quite a price when business gets bad. On the other hand, we look like geniuses when business is good. Another thing that we can do with this profit-equipped tax formula is to consider how many units we actually have to sell to break even, and this screen shows that. All we have to do to generate the, the formula for break even is to recognize that at break even we have zero profit. Just by definition, we're breaking even, we're neither losing money nor making any money. So profit before tax is zero. And if I set profit before tax equal to zero in the formula we were just looking at and then solve for the number of units to break even, it turns out that it's the fixed cost divided by the unit contribution. In the case of Universal Widget, which we were just looking at, with fixed cost of $20,000, and a contribution you recall of four dollars from each unit the difference between the price of ten dollars and the variable cost of six to produce it it means if we sell five thousand units we'll break even four dollars contribution on each of five thousand units generates exactly twenty thousand dollars that's just enough to cover fixed costs with nothing left over and therefore we're at break even at five thousand units anything above five thousand units all contribution goes to the bottom line is profit anything below five thousand units all contributions come out as negative and we lose that money so knowing the break-even point is kind of important it's particularly important to you managers because it's nice to make a lot of profit but it's very bad to take a loss and so one of the first questions almost any manager will will ask a subordinate if the subordinate is proposing that we get into a new business is how soon do we break even well of course the appropriate answer is it depends. You recall that's the answer to everything. But it really depends on how fast in this case we can get up to five thousand units. And ordinarily when you introduce a new product, you don't expect to be able to sell a lot of it immediately. We have to have to get marketed, we have to advertise it, we have to get word of mouth to get everybody convinced that our widget's the best widget. Uh, we've got to get stores to stock it so people can come in and buy it. So it takes time to build up the volume to the five thousand level. In the meantime, that manager has to report losses, and that's not the way to to endear herself to her boss, and so managers are very concerned with break-even points. Incidentally, professors generally aren't. Uh, We would argue that, you know, this is a nice number to know, but who cares? Because you see, universities, they break even, but that's not the professor's problem, that's the administration's problem. Incidentally, universities are the best example of a fixed cost operation, completely fixed cost, that you can imagine. The only variable cost my university has is chalk. And that's only variable if we let the students use it. As long as the professor uses the chalk on the blackboard, the amount of chalk I use doesn't depend upon the number of students and the revenues that come in from tuition. So even that's a fixed cost. The seats are a fixed cost. That's why we're really not interested in flunking anybody out, you see, because unless we can get a replacement, that's the same as losing sales volume and we're no longer generating the revenue that we call tuition. And we got all those fixed costs, including tenured faculty salaries, the president's salary, which is always a lot bigger, uh, the uh, administration salaries, and there's always plenty of that. We have one of the great bureaucracies of the world. The chalk, the space, everything's a fixed cost. So when we're full, boy, we, we really generate re- surpluses. We don't call them profits. But when we're not, we, we really hurt. And of course, we're very sensitive to demographics. Right now, the baby boom is over. And we won't see the baby boomers' babies until the year 2005, roughly, at which time the universities are all going to be crowded again. We solved the problem by going overseas and bringing in lots of foreign students. But not every school was smart enough to do that, and so a lot of schools are hurting now because they're the ultimate fixed-cost operation. So fixed and variable costs are things that we have to live with. I told you that the sales figure that, that goes on to the income statement is net of what we don't collect and generally isn't recorded until we actually do collect it and therefore there's every reason to believe we'd like to collect it as soon as possible and remember we have ways to encourage prompt payment other than breaking legs and that is offering discounts for prompt payment remember the 210 net 30 terms the trouble as i re- as you should recall is that if you offer those terms a lot of the big customers will pay late and still take the discount. Now, fixed costs are a worry. There are ways to control them. As I suggested, an important one is to try to avoid fixed costs. That is, to structure yourself so that your costs are variable. Typically, the way you do that is to use labor instead of machines. In fact, the best single measure of whether a company is a high fixed cost company is to go into the balance sheet and see if it has a high percentage of its assets invested in plant equipment. Because as soon as you see that big plant and equipment item, you know there's going to be a lot of depreciation charges. Further, since plant equipment is fairly long-lived, you can assume that a substantial part of that plant and equipment would be financed with borrowed money, which means, of course, there will be interest charges involved. And the combination of the two causes this leverage. If the fixed cost results from operational leverage, that is depreciation charges, we call it operational leverage. If the fixed cost results from financing, we call it financial leverage, financing in the form of interest charges. The combination of the two is what will really get to you, and usually they are found in combination. When a company has fixed costs in the form of depreciation, it almost inevitably also has fixed costs in the form of interest. If you were in a very cyclical business, I've suggested you would try to avoid fixed costs. One way to do it, of course, is to use labor instead of machines. There are other ways to do it, as in in an earlier session I suggested maybe we shouldn't do the work. That has to be done on fixed cost equipment. How about if we subcontract that work to someone else? Let that company own the machines. Now the cost that they incur is included in the cost of the product they sell to us, but we regard that product as our raw material or our inventory. And so we don't incur any of those costs unless we buy widgets from them, manufactured widgets. And so, you see, what we've effectively done is to make what would have been a fixed cost to us in the form of depreciation, a variable cost, because it's a fixed cost to our supplier, which he passes on to us as a price on the goods he sells to us, but we only pay for the ones we buy, and so it's variable to us. Another approach, if we go labor intensive, is to go somewhere else. Look for cheap labor. Now, industry is, is being bad-mouthed very heavily right now for taking jobs overseas. But can you see that there's at least two problems with, with labor in the United States? First, it's inherently more expensive, and secondly, it's becoming more and more of a fixed cost. Most of you have heard the term guaranteed annual wage. Well, what is that other than making a worker a fixed cost? Now, of course the worker would like a guaranteed annual wage, but the price that the company pays for providing a guaranteed annual wage is to transform what otherwise would be a variable cost of labor into a fixed cost and attached to all the fixed cost problems are the things we talked about. When business is great, it's great, and when it's bad, we're in deep trouble. So American industry becomes more vulnerable as it incurs higher fixed costs in the form of guaranteed annual wages. Going overseas, we don't offer that if we don't have anything for a worker in Mexico to do, we just don't pay them, they go home. Now, Japanese found it very attractive to come to this country to assemble automobiles. The reason being that the assembly process in automobiles is essentially labor intensive. If you've ever seen an assembly line, it's true they have a couple uh, cranes or something to help move things around, but basically it's a lot of people with hand tools. Tightening screws and bolts and two people put the windshield on and somebody put some glue around the edge and they put the rubber on. It's a labor-intensive activity. Well, if you were a Japanese company stuck with all the fixed costs that the Japanese see back home, wouldn't American labor look very attractive at this point? Because your most labor-intensive process, if you hire American labor, could become a variable cost because you could lay off American labor if you didn't have any cars to build on a given day. And so this may help to explain one of the reasons the Japanese have come to the United States to assemble cars. There are other reasons. It increases the American content of the car and therefore reduces the tariff they have to pay. It helps a little bit with the balance of trade, which has been generally too favorable, we feel, for the Japanese. Uh, And it finally helps transform the nature of labor. On the other hand, of course, the Japanese claim that American laborers are not as efficient as Japanese. Well, part of the efficiency in Japan is that the labor has a lot of machinery backing it up. Because you see, once labor becomes a fixed cost, there's no longer a trade-off as to whether to use machines or not. Remember, we avoided machines because they were a fixed cost, but now we can replace labor with machines without changing the nature of cost. We only do it if it's efficient. We don't care that we, haven't, that we have fixed costs because they were fixed in the first place. So we get rid of some workers and replace them with a machine. It's still fixed cost, but if the machine is more efficient, were in better shape. So in Japan, they use more machinery per worker, which is a way of saying that most of the auto manufacturing that's done of Japanese cars that are sold in this country consists of automated production of parts in Japan, which then get shipped to this country and are assembled here. Now in a later session, when we begin to look at other kinds of costs, including transportation and whatnot, we'll discover there's some other advantages to, to uh, building and assembling close to the marketplace let's take a look again at xyz's in- income statement you'll notice that we got down to a bottom line of profit after tax of some fourteen thousand dollars i keep wanting to put extra zeros after and if i say millions i know it's because you prefer big numbers but remember these are all in thousands They earn $14,000 on $100,000 worth of sales, so they're earning about a 14% profit margin. Remember, in earlier sessions, I told you that numbers by themselves don't mean anything. We have to ask, is that better or worse than before? So a legitimate question might be to ask, what did the profit margin look at like earlier? But before you look, let's think about this. Never look at a set of financials without first deciding what it is you expect to see. Take a set of expectations to financials before you look, and then you'll learn something. If we look at XYZ's balance sheet, we knew that they had some plant and equipment. In fact, $100,000 worth of plant and equipment out of a total of $135,000 worth of assets. They have a substantial investment in plant and equipment, which means they must have some substantial fixed cost called depreciation. In addition, we said that plant equipment is very often financed with long-term debt. And you remember on the balance sheet, they had $43,000 worth of long-term debt out of the $135,000 of financing, so they have a fairly substantial interest cost on the long-term debt. So XYZ has substantial fixed costs. If sales go up, what should happen to profits? Well, when you have fixed costs, profits should not only go up, but they should go up percentage-wise more than sales now let's look at XYZ's income statement sales increased from twenty thousand to a hundred thousand between 1994 and 1995 We that's a twenty percent increase twenty-five percent increase sorry from eighty to a hundred in sales we expect that earnings should go up even faster particularly pre-tax earnings, because we don't know anything about the tax bill yet, but certainly pre-tax earnings should go up faster than sales because we know there's leverage involved. Well, let's take a look at the pre-tax earnings. That's profits before tax. They went up from 17 to 24,000. That's seven parts in 17,000. That's almost a 35% increase in profits. Well, something over 30% anyway for a 20% increase in sales. So indeed, the result was what we expected it to be. Profits went up faster than sales, and given the fixed cost nature, and hence the, the leverage that's built into XYZ in the form of operating leverage, depreciation, and financial leverage, interest, we expected profits to go up faster. And that's the way they behaved. Of course, if you were a shareholder, you should now be alerted that what happens if sales fall? If we got a 10% decrease in profits, we have to anticipate or expect greater than a 10% decrease in pre-tax profits. So you see, if you take a set of expectations to the financials, then you can confirm your expectations. The thing that would really worry me is that if XYZ reported a 25% increase in sales and profits didn't go up by at least 25%, and something awful is going on. Some kind of costs are, are rising faster than they ought to, and we're not achieving what we ought to achieve. We could also check to see that their operating margin has improved. Now remember, the operating margin is simply the sales minus the cost of goods sold. Since cost of goods sold is mostly variable cost, we would expect operating margin to go up roughly the same rate as sales do. because. Cost of goods sold should go up at the same rate that sales do, being a variable cost. Well, what happened? The operating margin went up from 30 to 40%. It's actually up by 33% on just a 25% increase in sales. XYZ must be doing something right. How do we increase margins faster than sales, given that it consists mostly of variable costs? Well, several uh, opportunities might arise. If we make and sell more widgets, will we buy more raw material? And If we're a bigger buyer of raw material, might we bargain for better prices? If we make and buy or uh, and produce and sell more widgets, could we have more specialization of our labor? Could we have workers do more limited jobs. Now the labor would tell us that that means they're they're more efficient and they're working better but another possible explanation which we'll deal with in great length in a later session is that we've reduced the job down to the point because we have specialization that almost anybody can do it which means you don't have to pay much to get somebody to do it. So maybe we can bring down our unit variable cost in the form of labor cost as we get bigger by having more specialization on the part of the workers. It may be that as we get better at something and understand that we can sell more of it, we can justify taking on certain fixed costs in the form of plant and equipment, that is, automate and replace some of the labor cost. That might explain it. Well, let's see if, in fact, we did try to automate. We could look at the plant and equipment item on the balance sheet and find out that, indeed, we made some additional investment from 90,000 to 100,000 in new plant and equipment in the year 1995. Actually, we made a bigger investment than that because that's the net plant and equipment item, which normally would have gone down due to depreciation. But despite the depreciation, it actually went up $10,000. So we must have invested in plant and equipment with the result that we probably had lower labor costs to produce the the additional widgets, in fact, maybe all of the widgets that we made and sold in 1995. Put all of this together and we can begin to explain what was going on. We might also check to see if the interest expenses rose in line with what we expected. The interest expense in 95 was $4,000. Notice that in 94, it was only $3,000. Since most of that interest expense is tied to the long-term debt, we might look at and see what happened to long-term debt in the same period. Well, look at 95. There was $43,000 of long-term debt but we also have the current portion that's coming due. So, really, we paid interest on 43 plus 5, or $48,000 of long term debt. Compare that to the previous year when we only had 38,000 of long term debt and a current portion of 5, or $43,000 total. So, long term debt actually increased from $43,000 for the year to $48,000. That's roughly a 10% increase in long term debt, but notice that interest costs went up 33% from $3,000 to $4,000. Possible explanation, we had to refinance debt as it came due, the long-term portion of it, some of it's current this year, and maybe we had to pay higher interest this year to borrow. Some of the debt may have been on a variable interest rate. Some of you probably have variable rate mortgages where the interest rate changes every time the Fed messes around with with, the interest rates. So it's conceivable that we were being charged a higher interest rate on our debt, Because our debt went up, our creditors might have decided we're more risky and their answer to more risk is either to say no to more borrowing or to charge us more for the use of their money. So a number of explanations might explain why interest costs were higher this year than last. But can you see the significant things? What we do is learn by comparisons and more importantly perhaps than that, we learn by going to the financials with a set of expectations. How it varies from what we expect is where the real lesson is to be learned. If earnings had not gone up faster than sales, we should be very worried. In this case, they did exactly what we expected, so I feel, as a shareholder, a lot more comfortable with what's happening. I would have felt even less comfortable if earnings had gone down. We'll discover when we look at the U.S. Steel Iron report in the later session that these numbers become very, very important when you're trying to figure out whether you made a good investment or a bad investment. So the lessons we've learned. The nature of costs are very important. They affect not only performance through leverage, but they affect the pressures that management feels to make that next sale at just over variable cost, particularly the Japanese with their high fixed costs. We know that we'll try to avoid fixed costs if we're in a situation where sales are going to vary a great deal. That's particularly true if we're in a cyclical industry where the economy goes up and down and we sell more or less according to the economy. Automobiles fall in that category. It may also be that we're in a risky business where we could be wrong. Consider the women's garment manufacturer again. If she's wrong, she owns all those rags. Would it make sense for her to produce it with fixed-cost equipment and really get stuck when she doesn't sell this stuff? And so the nature of costs is particularly critical. And in the next session, we'll look even further at how costs affect the performance of a business.